0: Welcome to the first ever episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of the present day, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Jamie Woodcock. He is currently a senior lecturer from the Open University in the Department of People and Organizations. His work focuses on the emancipatory struggles in a range of 21st century workplaces and social activities. These range all the way from gig workers to video game developers. He has documented and contributed to struggles all over the world, from food delivery workers in South Africa to uber drivers in india to the formation of the radical independent workers union of great britain in london his latest book is gig economy a critical introduction with professor mark graham from the oxford internet institute and marks at the arcade consoles controllers and class struggle welcome to our inaugural podcast um we're here with jamie woodcock um So I think most of the people we're going to be uh, interviewing on this podcast will actually be people who are directly involved in alternative organizations or are activists working towards that. However, I wanted our first podcast to be one that actually engaged with someone who I think is really doing something uh, unique and quite interesting. So Jamie, I think it's fair to say that the work that you do and the research that you do um, is so wide ranging and diverse that it's a bit different than what I think anyone else is doing right now. Um, Because it really integrates, uh, I would say, high level critical theory with a serious attention to activist struggle, often in places you wouldn't think to look, uh, whether they be video games, whether they be arcades, Uh, or whether they be kind of broader questions of precarious labor and gig work. So I kind of just wanted to start. Do you think it's fair to say that, you know, you are really trying to look at some interesting revolutionary possibilities in places that are really right for them, but aren't traditionally uh, looked at?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think uh, I've always tried to, to think about how how people adapt to new situations and uh, new technologies, and so on. Uh, so, some of my research most recently has been in the gig economy, uh, which early on people said, you know, Uber drivers and food delivery couriers won't uh, be able to find out ways to organise. Um, but then, also, as you say, in less traditional places where people wouldn't have th- thought to look, so the video games industry. And you know, a lot of this comes from my my belief that. Uh, people find a way to to resist conditions that are put upon them uh, and to try and reshape uh, their work and the world around them uh, for the better in various ways and that maybe the job of the academic can be to to help document to help understand and to to share some of those stories
0: Mm -hmm. so I think one of the things I'd like to start with is just to get a sense of your background I mean you know, you've studied with some of the leading philosophers in the country, but you've also gone around the world looking at digital labor movements. So how did you get here?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's always a, it's always a difficult one to answer. How did we get, uh, get to where we are? And I think, you know, for me, uh, a lot of the stuff that I do now starts with, uh, you know, being a school kid and and walking out over the Iraq war, Um, you know, being part of a a collective movement with people of seeing the kind of possibilities of of collective power of people trying to trying to reshape the world around them and then kind of you know chasing that through through university through being involved in, in the student movements in 2010 uh, and then seeing that being an academic could 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 play a role in in helping to engage with some of those movements and to to try and understand how you know in the in the contemporary period like what what working class power and what working class organization means today. And yeah, I've, you know, I think I'm now at my 11th university, uh, something like this. So I've, I've worked all over the place and I've been very lucky to, to have funding to, you know, spend time with Uber drivers in India, uh, you know, food delivery workers in Cape town and, and try and, you know, put those people into conversation with each other and, and try to figure out what some of these bigger, questions that come from critical theory mean in practice for for people in in different places
0: Hmm. well i I thought maybe i could ask you just some kind of the if your foundational questions and then get into a bit more in-depth discussion around your research but also how you see uh the construction of a more emancipatory world um I think for some of our listeners though, I mean, you do a lot of work around the relationship between labor and work.
1: Um,
0: And I think sometimes they're used interchangeably even in the media, but I I think the research you do but also the traditions you come from want to take careful attention between understanding what those differences are. So if you could maybe just give a sense of why you think we need to think about what labor is and what work is in that relationship.
1: Yeah, so I think you're definitely right that these things can be used interchangeably. And I think often when they're used interchangeably, they can lose uh, some of the important meanings around them. Um, so I always think of labor as being the way in which we interact with the world in various ways, um, in simple ways, in more complicated ways, uh, you know, mediated by technology in different ways. And then seeing work as being The capitalist organization of that labor. Um, So instead of being able to use our labor uh, how we want to, uh, having to sell it for a wage, uh, or sometimes not receiving a wage for it, and so on. And so drawing out those power relationships around them, I think, is really important.
0: Hmm. I think one of the things that uh, is also interesting to discuss, though, is I don't know if this is actually really accurate, but I think it's a nice way to frame things sometimes, which is that fact that the relationship between work and life, for instance, used yeah. to be maybe more easily bounded and defined. But now I think that there are a lot of critical theories out there, and quite fantastic ones, that are really focusing on the ways in which labor intersects in everything we do, right? Socially or economically. And also we see in the work. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of people work from home uh, with Uber drivers, people work from their cars. So these boundaries in many ways are becoming so porous. So in this sense, on the one hand, what does it actually mean to say that we're really invested in a labor movement if labor is kind of everything, you know? So is that just saying, we're invested in any movement of resistance or does that still have a really important definition that we should take seriously? And also, what does it mean when we're, say, we're involved in working class struggles, particularly when work now seems to be in all facets of our life?
1: So I think there's a couple of things to, to kind of unpick there. Um, I mean, the first is I'm always reminded of this uh, when we think about boundaries between life and work. There's something my granddad used to say to me, where he used to say, I don't want a mobile phone. Uh, because if I have a mobile phone, uh, people from work will want to contact me. And when I leave work, I don't want to be contacted by them. He said, you know, there's a phone at home. I can choose to use that if I want to call other people. Uh, And he had this real sense of, like, why would you possibly want to take your work out of the workplace? Um, Which, if you imagine, for many workers today, the idea that you could simply, like, not respond to emails or phone calls or messages the moment you leave the workplace would be a a kind of totally alien concept um, that you could be unreachable when you weren't kind of in your formal nine to five. And I think for lots of people that, that kind of bleeding of, uh, 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 of work into life is, is a kind of huge problem. You know, we, lots of people find it very difficult to escape from, from those regimes of work. And so I think when we think about that in terms of like what, what working class struggle means is i'm always interested in studies uh you know uh, of doing these studies in in workplaces where you can understand how collectively people try to reshape their work because in many senses this is where people have the potential for important forms of collective power uh, so to stop a workplace from operating to interrupt capital accumulation for for capitalists to make money you know this is a, a weak spot that people can organize around but the history of these struggles has also been histories of struggles outside of work of control over where you live how much you pay to live there uh, what our communities are like and so on so i think there's an important difference between like workplace struggles as one form of important struggle through which we can change the and then working class struggles which are a much broader take on a much broader uh, focus beyond the workplace
0: Mm. I think that brings us to a really uh, interesting kind of question that I think a lot of people, even those who aren't particularly interested in radical struggles or politics, are starting to ask, which is there is a resurgence of progressive politics and yeah. even a resurgence of labor movements. And and this has brought a, a re-engagement with uh, Marxism and the theories of Karl Marx. Um, And I'm interested because, you know, we'll get into more detail um, to the particular movements that you've looked at. But on a broader scale, I find that very interesting in a sense that, firstly, a lot of the movements that I I think are arising, for better or worse, without judgment, we would kind of know from history, actually, Marx wouldn't necessarily support. um, I can't imagine Marx thinking the democratic socialist of America, however inspiring they may be, is a Marxist organization. Um,
1: sure, sure.
0: Um, also, there seems to be so much energy into electoral politics, um, and you've just really spoke about the power that people have within, you know, uh, workplaces. So, in this respect, what do you think? You know, you've talked about working class struggles and the labor movements and these things. What do you think Marx still has to offer us? And how do you think that, in a certain sense, considering that so much of the ways in which we work and what constitutes the working class, and also the conditions of political possibility have changed, um, he has to be expanded upon.
1: Of course, and I think, um, you know, I'm always reminded, so I, I, I sometimes do do reading groups with um, about Marx uh, with some of the workers we've been organizing with or with people who are interested. And what often comes up when people read something like the Communist Manifesto is how much of this still speaks to the conditions of today, but how there are lots of things that are missing that we need to, to think about in that context. Um, so I always think of myself as a, uh, you know, I read a lot of Marx, I'm, you know, I'm a Marxist, but it's certainly not, you know, Marx doesn't have an answer for, for everything, but has a, a framework, uh, you know, has a theory that can be readapted and reapplied and developed to help us make sense of today. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think it's really interesting that people are returning to, to Marx and are finding that it can help guide their struggles today. Um, which certainly, over the last thirty years or something, there have definitely been points where Marx has not been a touchstone for for many movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think it's an important moment because it it helps to ground people's politics and particularly around a politics that relates to to who has the power to create change and how does the system. How, how does the system more broadly operate? Uh, and I think those are both tactically and strategically very useful for people.
0: Hmm. So I want to I want to move into then uh, a bit more in depth about your own work. And I know you've given lots of interviews and you've written a lot about actual concrete struggles involving Uber drivers or food delivery workers, uh, talking about algorithms and kind of predictive governance, but I'm also interested in maybe something that is part of your work that isn't as highlighted, which isn't just about how this is these are important workers that need to be you know given enough attention, but you've actually spoken about and written about how you think this is a really interesting and exciting area for organizing itself and rethinking um, emancipatory struggle
1: yeah so I'm a lot of those case studies are guided by uh, this kind of sense taken from from later Marx where he, he writes something called which he calls a worker's inquiry, which is this idea that uh, theories about capitalism or theories about how uh, who has power or how we change the world should be uh, connected to people's actual lived experience. Now, in a sense, this sounds like a totally obvious thing to say, like the struggles that are going on now should help us understand, you know, how to analyze the world and so on. Um, but for many Marxist theorists, or for many people, they're often not much of an interest in what happens in people's lives or how they make sense of the world themselves. Uh, and so with a couple of, uh, a couple of colleagues and some friends, we you know have been trying and experimenting with this kind of practice of putting, putting theory into contact with organizing. Uh, and trying to combine the two and, and talking about it in terms of doing workers' inquiries with people. Um, and a, a lot of this is also saying if you write about Uber drivers, you should try and get Uber drivers' voices to be central in this, to describe their conditions. Um, and so it's trying to connect those on-the-ground experiences to an emancipatory politics. And for me, a lot of that process is around you know, how are we organized at work so how, how what technologies are used, how are we managed, what's the work like? And then thinking about how we're organized in society. You know, what's our housing like? How are we ruled over in terms of laws and regulations? What's the role of migration? And understanding how that technical and more social aspect um, then helps us to understand the forms through which people struggle. So we can have the kind of our technical arrangement at work, our social arrangement more broadly, and how that shapes the politics that people are involved in, what kind mm-hmm. of struggles they, they take part in, uh, who they struggle with, and so on. So we've been, been using that to try and unpick and rethink what, what an emancipatory politics looks like mm-hmm. today.
0: So one of the aspects about that as well that's important is using this kind of workers' inquiry to really explore specifically, even generally, how you move from uh, kind of often very important reformist politics of, you know, say, let's help you get better wages, let's help you get better conditions, to one that is a worker-driven emancipatory politics, which is about in the areas themselves, but also, again, at a more global level, thinking about a different type of society. So from your experiences, what are some of the opportunities and challenges you've seen, especially since you're working with a lot of uh, people who really are having to think for their own material reproduction just day to day?
1: Yeah, I think um, when you look at some of these disparate kind of case studies, so like Uber drivers or video game workers or cleaners or security guards, you know, there's a kind of range of different examples we can look at. Uh, is that a lot of what motivates people to, to organize together, like, of course, for some people, it's about pay. You know, these kind of having a, a higher material of standard, uh, standard of living is an important thing for lots of people. You know, it's hard to, to, to be able to pay for all the things we need to in society and so on. But that a lot of these struggles are motivated by much more than this. So, if, you know, for cleaners in London, for example, the question of dignity is a huge one. Of being treated with respect. Um, You know, for a lot of the video game workers, it's about control, you know, to have a say over the work that they spend these huge amounts of time doing. And so I guess what I think is useful about inquiry is how we unpick these struggles that are happening and how some of the demands point to another way of organizing society. You Mm -hmm. know, why shouldn't video game workers have a say over? excuse me, have a say over the work they do and what kind of things they create. You know, why shouldn't delivery riders uh, have a say over over what the platform is used for? And so it's about identifying those potentials as they as they emerge from people's actual lives rather than saying, well, critical theory tells us this. It's trying to connect the two. Uh, because that's the basis on which we could actually get any of these things after all.
0: Mm. I think... It's also interesting. You've mentioned a lot about the kind of technical aspects of work, and you work a lot with technology workers. Um, and you know, there are oftentimes two—I wouldn't say mutually exclusive, but certainly opposite points um, views. Which is, you know, you have a kind of Marxian view, which is, well, you know, capitalist technology can be used for socialist ends. And then I think sometimes you have the you know, kind of Audrey Lord view that you know you can't you know um, you can't you know tear down the master's house with the master's tools in a certain sense. Um, so a lot of these technologies uh, are actually ones that are specifically developed and made for capitalist accumulation. So how do you feel about their ability to be repurposed uh, for a different and more emancipatory and, and, and liberating? Um, way of being?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, when we look at, at food delivery platform workers or, 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 or app-based transport workers like Uber drivers, you know, technology is a tool that is used to to manage and exploit these workers. Uh, you know, hidden behind algorithms, you know, decisions are being made that they have very little ability to, to understand what's happening or to be able to appeal any of it. And so you could really see this. You can see how technology is being used to immiserate people. Um, But it's because that technology is in the hands of of management and in in the hands of capital. But I think on the flip side, and this is where, you know, I I, I see a a lot of potential for, for technology, is everywhere you go in the world, well, the U.S. is slightly different, but everywhere else you go in the world, WhatsApp is the communication tool of choice. Uh, for many workers and it allows workers to form networks very very quickly uh, you know to be in communication with each other and so you can see how technologies and you know there are huge problems with whatsapp Uh, you know it's not designed to be an organizing tool Uh, it's very difficult to have democratic discussions inside of whatsapp and so on but workers find a way to use these to do what they were trying to do which was to get in touch with people who share the same job to talk about strategies to plan actions is of course in an ideal world, there would be a, you know, a completely different form of technology that would allow people to do this, but instead these things can be taken on you know appropriated by the workers' movement in various ways and used as a tool uh, to fight against the forms of exploitation mediated by technology that they have at work, you know the algorithm or, or whatever it is
0: so I think that's a really, really good point. And, and I, I think there is you know, such possibilities of repurposing. And I think one thing also to consider is the fact that we say these things are designed for certain purposes, but actually the complexities of something like how platforms are designed, how the internet was created, actually had so much public investment, had so yeah, yeah. many cooperative aspects as well, that they're in many ways also built into these otherwise capitalist technologies. But- I think I'm also really interested uh, for a moment, if I can, about looking at your work on video games. So you've talked about video game workers um, but when people think about oftentimes radical politics, I have to if, I have to admit and, and that sometimes it can seem very, very inspiring, impassioned, but you don't hear a lot of the word "fun" very often right <laughs> I don't think you know we're, we're, we're going to move towards a socialist society and it's going to be fun in fact if anything i think you know capitalism has kind of cornered the market on entertainment oftentimes that you know uh, but actually i think your work kind of points to the fact that you know this notion of enjoyment and entertainment and fun the construction of a post-work society is particularly precisely for that so in what ways have you been able to look at video games as something that could signal and gesture towards not only a opportunity for social struggle, but also for a different way in which we can have entertainment in a different type of society?
1: So I think, I think video games are a really great kind of example of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the tensions that we've been talking about and this question. So if you imagined what a capitalist video game would look like, you would kind of, you know, imagine there was no space for, for kind of critical thinking, for utopian ideas, and so on. But what's kind of fascinating about the video games industry is you have, you know, video games that tend towards the kind of worst reactionary politics under capitalism. But at the same time, we have these much more radical forms of entertainment, experiments with different ways of doing things. That comes about because. You know video games begin as a misuse of uh, of military hardware of people finding ways to to muck around at work and to do something more enjoyable and that, that tension runs through the whole history of video games uh, of people trying to do something different, uh, more creative, and then things being pulled back uh, by by capital by big publishers, and so on so we you can kind of see video games as like a you know an ideological Kind of arena, a space where ideas battle battle out, and where some alternatives uh, emerge in various ways and you know the reason they matter is because so many people play video games today um, you know think of GTA 5 is the most popular media commodity of all time, and so what happens with the stories in video games you know matters for how we have battles about ideas for how we could run society differently and so on. Plus, you also have this emergent story of video game workers organizing, which adds a kind of whole nother flavor to to that kind of discussion.
0: Mm. And I think it's also really interesting to see with video games about how traditionally non-capitalist values are kind of incorporated within their very praxis. I mean, so for instance, it's really incredible to watch how collaborative advantage and cooperation and teamwork are like, you know, really important part of video game cultures now. Um, And they require a really strong sense of sociality. Once that I think even in kind of reactionary video games, um, such as many of the kind of Tom Clancy-esque, you know, anti-terrorist games, the actual teamwork involved in that, does point to, you know, a more collaborative uh, economy and also a more collaborative way of being. I mean, watching people log on and often with strangers just form a team and get to know each other is oftentimes pretty incredible to watch, even when you're thinking, this is really a politically reactionary game.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think this is where, like, the left, more kind of broadly speaking, had, had really missed an opportunity. We're thinking about what it means to... To to make video video games a part of a discussion about these alternatives, you know the left has done this with other forms of culture, you know, with other forms of art, with film, with music, and so on. Has taken seriously, like what it means when people come together, uh, you know, what how they come together, as you talk about the, you know, these cooperative practices and so on. And the problem is, for many people, if you play online video games today, what you're usually met with is yes, there's this cooperation, but there's also a deep toxicity in many games mm-hmm. that's kind of whipped up by, uh, you know, by the the alt-right. Um, and there is a kind of a sense in which the left has ceded ground in video mm-hmm. game culture to much more reactionary forces, which, you know, is a huge mistake.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the interesting... Um opportunities that has been missed is that the video industry has done incredible jobs, I think, of creating scenarios that are either extremely dystopian, often ironically, like playing up like, oh, capitalist society is going to end up in an apocalypse. How are you going to survive? And not that I have a conspiracy at all to think that, like, you know, they know what's coming and they're trying to create the next generation to have the skills to survive it. But it is really interesting. How that's there, or I think really, really kind of like you know militaristic reactionary games about terrorism and counterterrorism. Um, but you know, there's nothing stopping the construction of a game of like what it would be like to go on adventures um, in a kind of you know post-work, post-capitalist future, and working together around these things. And, and I think there's a lot of space for that. Um, and I think in you know, a sense that people want such interactivity. It's a really missed opportunity to actually begin, you know, really creating stories about how people could live and really aspire and work together in a different type of world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean I think you know, the first thing to think about this is that, you know, the reason we have so many militaristic video games is because, you know, the military funded a lot of video games. Um there's even a title, America's Army, which was a direct recruitment tool for the U.S. military. Um, so, you know, other people have seen these as ways of having an argument with players, of uh, of convincing them of some things being normal or acceptable or so on. Um, and so there's that question of, you know, how could things be, be done differently? Uh, you know, how could we explore alternatives and so on? Is Is one where, you know you can't kind of stand on the sidelines and go, oh, isn't it terrible that this is the kind of culture that has developed or, or, or so on. And instead you can unpick like why these things have happened in the way that they have. And I think in a way it helps us to to think about like what ideology means more broadly in society. Is, you know, ideology is never total. There's always, you know, these spaces where people try to do alternative things or, or, or make other arguments. And so that's what I kind of quite like about thinking through video games is it helps us to think through like where else, you know, can we start thinking about what alternatives are or find these tendencies of people coming together to try and try and do something different. Um, And plus maybe it means we can spend a bit of time playing video games and, and call it research, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that also uh, bridges something that we haven't really talked about, um, but I've, know, you've thought about, and I find very interesting is how these kinds of affective practices, whether it's gamification, whether it's the quantified self, is actually really being incorporated in quite precarious work. So, I mean, I think sometimes you see things like Uber, and if you're not an Uber driver, you might just think, "Oh, well, this is just a, a really you know difficult job," or you might not think about it much at all. But actually. I mean, I think that there's a lot of kind of ways in which you're creating implicit and explicit incentivization types of cultures that Im- that even if you know you're being exploited, there's still something quite nice like, oh, I picked up this many drivers today. Just in the similar way that, you know, you may have a question about the ideology of kind of, you know, our body image culture. But there's an enjoyment sometimes in being able to track how many steps you've walked and you know, see how much weight you may have lost or gained. So I thought maybe it'd be good to kind of, you know, explore that with you a little bit about understanding how some of these technologies are actually, you know, already incorporating these types of kind of incentivization, quantification, but really almost enjoyable game aspects to further their exploitation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always think about this with with gamification that. You know, when I mark essays, uh, you know, I set myself targets and I, you know, give myself a reward once I've marked X number or whatever. And, you know, if you want to go for a run, you tell yourself, you know, if I run twice this week, I'll have some other kind of, you know, reward or so on. This is what I think is kind of both interesting and terrifying about gamification, is it's a really powerful psychological trick um, that we find very, very compelling as people. Um, so we like that idea, that kind of feedback loop of uh, of uh, of getting meeting a target, of making the reward, and so on. And it's something that can be really powerfully used against us at work. Uh, so when I did research in call centres, you know, everything was gamified. You know, the number of calls you made, uh, meeting different targets on call length, and so on. And of course, you know, when you don't want to be in the call center, because, you know, most people I worked with, it wasn't what they wanted to be doing. These things can create kind of intense psychological pressure. This kind of feeling of constantly being uh, measured and tracked and having to keep pushing to reach the next bit. And, and so I, I think we can kind of think about how, you know, some of these techniques we should, we should be opposed to at work. Uh, you know, if we want to work, we should work. We shouldn't be kind of... Corralled and tricked through these kind of uh, these psychological ways of doing things, and yeah. um, and the reality is, for most workers that have gamified kinds of work, they you know they're in workplaces where there isn't collective organisation and a union or so someone that says we should negotiate around this. Instead, for Uber drivers, for call centre workers, these things are being tested on them. You know they're experimenting with these things to see. You know, can we squeeze a bit more out of people and so on? And that's, you know, that's a deeply, deeply kind of uncomfortable process.
0: Mm. I mean, and I think that brings us then to another aspect, another dimension that I think is really significant, um, which is so you spent a lot of your research looking at how things like WhatsApp, how things like Facebook, how digital and virtual uh, connections can be radicalized, and how this specifically looks within these types of industries that rely upon this. However, I think one of the things that we both share as people who's been involved for a long time in activism, but then also within your work, and I would encourage uh, people to look at it, because even if you don't necessarily always like academic work, Jamie's work is anything but dry, is these really wonderful scenes, and this really kind of investigations you do about the in real life spaces people find. I think at the food delivery drivers, uh, you know, they, they, they would meet actually in random places, but person to person. And also the ways in which, you know, you really do capture in your work um, the humor people have, um, you know, that the, the, there's a lot of really strong sense of forming a community that's often, you know, linked to common struggle but has a huge amount of just, um, you know, for lack of a better word, joking around and making fun of each other quite a bit and things. So, and I know from my own experiences uh, of doing activism, um, how important that type of connection is. So how do you bring those together? That traditional sense of, you know, having a beer with people Having your secret jokes with people, having these communities uh, where you get together and you have fun while you're struggling on a picket line with what can sometimes seem a different type of perhaps more depersonalized kind of WhatsApp or Facebook connections.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of quite important, uh, yeah, quite important things that I mean I, we've probably all met the the kind of professional. Uh, organizer or the person who's like, you know, you have to go to a meeting and it has to last all evening, and you know, it's yes. not going to be any fun, and you know, it's really this is like, this is like work, it's a chore, and so on. Is one of the things I think is really important with organizing is, is as you say, thinking about affect, you know, thinking about feeling and emotions. Is that when people come together to try and change the world, you know, or try and change their workplace, or you know, whatever they're coming together to do. Most people are not, you know, they're not looking for that immediate benefit for themselves. Um, You know, they're fighting for other people. They're, you know, fighting for their colleagues, for their friends and so on. And so the things that bond people together through that process, I think, are incredibly important. You know, the jokes about a manager, uh, you know, joking about that bad day at work, the, the kind of unusual humor that comes out of shared experience and so on. But also the, like, sitting around, building trust, getting to know each other, you know, the different migrant communities bringing their ways of doing things and sharing those, you know, I think are incredibly important building blocks for how we take collective power. And I think that's where, you know, if we focus on technology, you know, that instant messaging is what allows people to organize. Like, that's what allows a connection. It's when we, you know, get together and share and build trust and take action together, that's that's where like the collective power lies. And it, it should be fun. You know, mm. none of us want to spend our life lives going to meetings. We want to have fun and we want to win, you know?
0: Mm. And and I think one of the aspects that's also quite important about that I, I wanted to ask you about was, you know, traditionally the relationship between employee and employer was so was much more often defined, right? But a lot of these, um, and I certainly know for myself that when I did uh, service level jobs, it was clear who the manager was and the general manager, etc. cetera. Um, but now, I mean, I think that what you see in a lot of different industries, um, many of which involve platform work um, and get working is that this line is oftentimes one really blurry, So like, you know, um, you have, you know, I've been heads of department before, which makes me a line manager, but I'm also a worker. And I, you know, identify in terms of my academic, as an academic worker and my struggles in that. Also, a lot of times they are algorithmic, you know, like who is your boss? You know, how can you really have a general strike (laughs) against an algorithm? So in those senses, how does you think that this forces us to rethink some of that kind of traditional boundary lines and dividing lines between, you know, which side are you
1: on? Yeah, I think this is a, it's a kind of deliberate strategy is to, to make it harder to have that clear dividing line. You know, you look at universities today, there are so many managers and different levels of managers, people with some responsibility and so on. And you get this, you know, all through other sectors that you know, it's almost as if people that own these companies realize it's a bad idea to have a single focus point for people's anger around the things that are wrong with their work. You know? It's not a good idea to have that, that clear focus. Mm. But I think the reality is that for lots of people, those dividing lines are still quite clear. You know, there are people who benefit from making other people work harder, and then there are the people that have to work hard. Um, and I think... You know, this is the kind of trick of Uber, is that, you know, we were told about automation is going to take away all these jobs. At Uber, what it's taken away is the managers, or at least the majority of the managers. But what it doesn't stop is the antagonism that Uber drivers feel with Uber. But it's the difficulty is where to identify, you know, expressing that antagonism. Um, And so I think a lot of the time for people, it's, you know, these have been been attempts to defuse anger in the workplace um but it's a strategy that can only work so long um and i think what we've seen recently with a lot of you know the different workers movements and strikes that have kind of sprung up over the past couple of years is that that strategy can't hold people back from organizing um and it, it kind of reaches reaches its limit
0: mm-hmm. so I think then that also then raises a a really a a point of emphasis, but also a point of discussion about where we should be putting our energy. Um, and, And I think it's a hard one because, you know, when you look at so much of radical politics now, it has a very strong aspect of within workplaces. But then also, I think there are really exciting kind of electoral movements happening. Um, And I think, you know, in this digital age, I I, I think, you know, I I, want to see your view on this. It's not a simple question, but do you think that you, you know, that it's still true that, you know, we're not going to be able to achieve another world through the ballot box? Or do you think that actually there is political labor that's worth putting into and, you know, really connecting up these working class movements, um, you know, for things like supporting Sanders or previously supporting Corbyn or, you know, um, looking across and trying to form kind of electoral transnational coalitions. Um, I mean, what, how do you feel about that? Because you've kind of, you, you, you are kind of like in many ways looking at these kind of struggles. And I think that it's important to kind of get a sense of, does that just take energy away from working class movements or is that an important part of them?
1: So I think this depends on on how electoral campaigns are organised. Um, is I'm you know I'm always a slightly cautious about electoral campaigns because they can they can take the focus away from where I see change, are stemming from, which is people's struggles at work. But I think you know electoral campaigns, and I think you know the Sanders campaign and and uh, the Corbyn campaign, for example, have shown that these can be important ideological arenas. Um, you know, in the battle of ideas, it's really good to have someone stand up and say, you know, there are problems with capitalism. You know, society is unfair. You know, we need better worker rights or, 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 or whatever it is. But ultimately, I don't believe that you can vote in a thoroughgoing economic, social and political change um, because of how power is structured in society. Uh, is that, you know, people are not going to accept a popular vote and give up their accumulated power and resources without a fight. Uh, but I think for some people that that means, well, let's just not bother with electoral politics. Um, is actually, I think with the Corbyn movement, it's been great to see so many young people engage with politics, you know, have these arguments, go out and meet people, go through a process of engaging with politics beyond people there they immediately know. Um, mm-hmm. And what I hope is that there is a kind of lesson there that in between the electoral cycle, you can carry on that kind of organizing. You know, you mm-hmm. do it at work, you do it in your community. Um, and so that whether or not the vote is the thing that can be the, the kind of start of change, that people people see that moment, like a moment of politicization and, and going out into the world and, and engaging with people.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think then the other aspect of that, though, from uh, almost an opposite end is, and it's, I've been really fascinated how in the UK, in the US, this is beginning less attention because it's so important now. You look at about what's happened in Latin America, you look at what, in, in like, for instance, in Chile, you look what happened, what's happening now in uh, France, you look what's happened in India, that this kind of almost Rosa Luxemburg type general strike politics has become increasingly important. Um, and I want to see your view, because you've worked a lot on kind of, on the one hand, more kind of discrete struggles, but also ones that do use those technologies that have allowed for these general strikes to occur. So do you think the general strike is now an important ideological and political tool for such an emancipatory politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, general strikes play, play an incredibly important role important moment of 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 both economic and political struggle um is for many people the withdrawing of their labor is a key weapon they have to try and change the world i think you know part of the difficulty is thinking about you know what it means to go on strike today um you know a a general strike of a day uh is not gonna have a, a a thorough and permanent change and so thinking about you know when we withdraw our labor how do we do it and I think you know for example for universities this is a huge question you know what does it mean to strike in the public sector you know what does it mean for uber drivers to go on strike is I think although it's exciting to see the general strike return in various ways as like part of the toolbox of struggle there's also a question of like when we all strike together like how do we make sure we get what we want um, and I sometimes think there's a risk with strikes that we see the strikers like, oh, yeah, of course the strike is, you know, you have five days where you don't go to work or you do X or Y. Is that really we need to think about how our work is organized and how, you know, how we can exert leverage. And of course, the more of us that can do it at once, the the better, which is why a general strike is so, so exciting.
0: Yes. I mean, And I think that that really nicely helps to move us then towards from kind of general strike to a question of like, what what are we trying to achieve? And and, and so I wanted to start this podcast um, with you because, in a way, you know, you represent in ways that I respect this really strong commitment to making another world possible through actually allowing people the means and conditions of possibility to imagine that world as opposed to just simply telling them. Um, But I did wanna raise a, a question about this in a certain sense of how did you combine a kind of worker inquiry approach, one that is very bottom up, one that is very struggle specific with at the same time giving people the ideological tools to actually imagine what a different world would look like, because I think that is something really important. That you know, people need the experience and imagination to know what even like what would a day in the life of uh, you know a high tech communist world look like, right? Not your principles, not your ideas, but like what would it be like? Like what would it be like to live for one day? in a non-capitalist world and i'm kind of wondering how you feel about that balance between on the one hand taking an approach that is very struggle oriented very worker inquiry oriented and also viewing it as you know the other hand of giving people this vision that they can you know aspire to
1: so i i, th- I think this is a brilliant question and i think it's both like One of the problems in a sense, but maybe one of the challenges of thinking about inquiry is like if we use inquiry with different groups of workers, we can help support those workers in their struggles. We can help those workers to understand how they relate to the workplace and how they can try and change it. But one of the challenges is how you leap to that larger political level. You know, what does it mean for society as a whole? Uh, And that's a really difficult question. Um, But I think... One of the exciting uses of inquiry I've seen is with um, the tech workers in the US and, and in the UK of getting people to sit down and talk about their work, getting people to think about who their work impacts, but then also thinking about how they could do their work differently. Hmm. Is If we think about that utopia, for many of us it feels so far away that it can be difficult to comprehend Like what a non-capitalist world would even, would even involve. But we could possibly start thinking about that by imagining, you know, we're both academics, you know, what would academic work be like without the demands of capital? Mm. You know, what would a hospital be like? What would, you know, driving people around uh, for transportation look like is what I, I'm always very keen on thinking and here, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of CLR James who did, you know, uh, this, this fantastic writing in the US with, with factory workers in the post-war period of like, if you want to see what the future society looks like, like the embryos are in the struggles of people right now. So like when people come together and look after each other during a strike or after a nat- natural disaster or whatever is, like that's where the utopia begins is in those moments where we come together to to try, to try and do things differently. Um, but I think more broadly, I think, you know, that is a kind of moving from the, the very small scale to try and take on like a very large question is I think this is also like, there's a problem that the left needs to remember how to dream again. Mm. Like saying, wouldn't it be great to go back to like the post-war period and the formation of the NHS is like, wouldn't it be good to go to the future, you know, yes. to imagine an alternative. And I think, you know, over those long periods of defeat that the left has been through, like part of that has been like losing the ability to dream of a better alternative. Um, And I think that's something we have to like bring through in our practice of talking to people about how things could be different or how things could be better. Mm. And, you know, video games and sci-fi provide us some resources to start some of those things, you know, to imagine a way of doing those things, but to see that that's not like a diversion, like that's actually a political practice of like imagining futures. Um, Mm. Which you know, we still have to fight to get there, of course, but it's still worth like having those 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 dreams.
0: So I think then, if you know, building on that quickly, you are someone who you know has your background in um, activism as a, a kind of scholar activist, and you and you've thought a lot about kind of you know uh, the Gramsci notion of you know what an organic intellectual is, etc. But I remember the first time we met, right, um, you kind of, I forget the precise word that you said first thing, but it really struck me, which was that, you know, you are considered yourself someone who's kind of an activist scholar who just happens to do sociology in critical theory. (laughs) Uh, And that, you know, you really, and and I've seen this, and we've talked about this subsequently, that, you know, you really wanted to not have this be confined to these kind of traditional, oftentimes quite, left-wing and radical social science traditions, but that, you know, one of the reasons that you have expanded that, you have you really do believe that there's no reason that a computer scientist shouldn't be as much of an activist scholar as you are, um, and also shouldn't, you know, be as much of an organic intellectual as you are. So I'm kind of, you know, really trying to maybe draw you out on that, and I think people really could understand, like, okay, well, you're a sociologist who goes in and works with, you know, uh, struggles, and you see yourself as an activist scholar. But in fact, you you see, you know, you could be a biologist, you could be a doctor, you could be, again, uh, someone who's working with robotics. So, for you, what do you then see as the kind of this common ethos of being a twenty percent kind of activist intellectual, not just, um, I would say, in academia, but in general?
1: Yeah, so I I guess one of the things I'm always worried of is that we we gatekeep expertise. So we say, you know, there are people who, uh, you know, who have studied this a long time, and they know, you know, the the start and the end of that story. And and so I'm I always feel a little bit uncomfortable. (coughs) Excuse me, being a sociologist because, you know, I have a sociology degree, but you know it's just happened to be the home that i found to do these things that i think are important uh, you know i could be a geographer i could be in in management is you know i think when we start kind of having these boundaries around knowledge i think it can be it can be a real problem and also when you write about work like there are already people who know more about uber than me like all over london there are uber drivers who've spent the last 5 6 is driving every day like they understand Uber in ways that I don't. And so I always think like if you study movements or forms of work, the question isn't about being an expert and going to those people, but is about how do we, how do we have a meeting point where we can share and develop ideas collectively. Now, obviously, like sometimes that's more complicated than, than in other moments and so on. But it's to say that, you know, if we believe that ordinary people can change the world, like ordinary people can have ideas about how to change the world. You know, maybe they don't have not been told that they're allowed to do this or they don't have the vocabulary to, to express it in the same way as academics, but it's about this belief that collectively we can change the world. And that means collectively other people should engage in, in what, what knowledge is and our ideas about society, Mm. Um, which obviously, you know, uh, I have much more time and the space to do it. And so that's also partly why I think, you know, academics should should give things back to people who they do research with, support, resources, and so on, um, because we're lucky enough to have the time to to be able to write books and to think about these things in ways that other people aren't. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and and I think kind of two more questions that I'd like to end with, because I, I think that's a really brilliant question. Uh point and, and quite inspiring is can you tell listeners one or two instances where you know even if it was only for an hour or a day or a week where you've been studying and part of movements and you saw for yourself you know what this different world could look like even if it's even just in a meeting um, or longer but just something that you know gives a flavor um, of how it's not just something in the future, but you've actually, you know, had that experience and it's been quite inspiring and often maybe in quite unexpected places or times.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I I think these moments are the things that, these are really the things that I find incredibly inspirational. And I think a lot of them for me come through my engagement with uh, a small trade union in London called the IWGB, the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain. And I think some of the moments I found... Kind of most inspirational for that recently is the union organises a whole range of different precarious workers: um, Uber drivers, delivery couriers, cleaners, security guards, video game workers. Is there been a couple of moments recently where we've had socials? Uh, the union uh, makes a big deal out of also having social events uh, as well as having meetings. You know, so people can get to know each other. Build trust and so on. Uh, these socials are really good because they're often influenced by the Latin American community that uh, that we organize with. So the the food is good, the music is good, uh, the dancing is uh, is is great fun as well. It's seeing this moment where a, a young video game worker, you know, is dancing salsa with a Latin American cleaner, you know, who's come over from Ecuador uh, and has worked as a cleaner most of their life. Um, you know, is talking with a video game worker who's trying to figure out how to change uh, his own conditions, has a very different you know, experience at work, is then talking with a security guard and an Uber driver and seeing that moment where these workers of different migrant backgrounds, you know, different material conditions in various ways, come together and share something because they're in a union together. You know, that shows that kind of moment of collective power like that's how a future is going to be built you know not these moments where you think I'm an academic I wouldn't talk to the cleaner in my building you know it's that moment of coming together as people and celebrating each other's struggles it's those little collective moments that I just find like deeply deeply inspiring
0: Mm, no I I think that's beautiful And, and I've also had those in many situations and you're right those are the moments when you realize, you know, there's something more, the more we're oftentimes given in the world. Um, I think I'd, I'd like to just end um, then with, you talked about, and, and I think it's a really wonderful way of, you know, using our critical imagination to imagine our own lives in relation to work differently. And I think if you ask someone, what would, you know, a post-capitalist academic life look like um, from the outside, they might just say, oh, um, either it's not that much different than what you do um, because they may not know actually about how exploited we are um, and how, how pressurized our lives are, or they might say, oh, well, you would just, you know, write every day. I mean, but I think it'd be good, in a, and I, I like to do this with most of our guests going forward, you know, to kind of end on, you know, just you having even a little bit of a imaginative critical reflection. What would your life look like, do you think, if you were doing what you love to do right now, um, but without a lot of the constraints and pressures of capital?
1: So, so the first thing is there'd be, there'd be less emails and less meetings. And that, that on its own would be like a huge victory. Um, but the other bit, and I think, you know, this is, the university has changed so so radically in the last few decades. Is that you? Almost like, can't imagine what teaching would be like, what teaching and research would be like without the the impacts of capital. But you know, what could what could it be like in, in the future? Well, people, students would come, and you would collectively discuss with them what they wanted to learn, and then you would collectively learn it with them. Um, that research and teaching wouldn't be these two separate sterile things that we do, but that the university would be a space for everyone where people could come to, 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 to learn things they're interested in and to teach people about things they're passionate about. And that would be like a fundamental shift in what the university is because so much of the university today has nothing to do with either of those activities. So, you know, it would be a creative and radical space and that would be, that would be a joy for, for me and I'm sure it would be for other people to, to be able to engage with it. So, you know, there is a world to win, Peter.
0: on that note there definitely is Jamie and I want to thank you so much for being our inaugural guest Uh, uh, and again uh, there is another world to win and you're a key part of doing that so thank you again Jamie thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Another World is Potable my name is Peter Bloom and remember until next time Another world is not only possible, but happening right now.